Once we were dead, separated from God. But Scripture describes a great mystery that moves us from death to life. A union between the created and the divine. United with Christ, we have an inheritance. We are redeemed and we are restored from our brokenness. But how do we experience this great mystery? How do we get from life as we know it to union with the Son of God? And what does it mean to be found in Christ? Well, good morning again. As you just saw, we're going to be continuing our series in Ephesians today, so I'd like to invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, grab one of the blue ones. We'll be on page 568 today. Um, I've got a few notes, just announcements for you this morning just to make you aware of some things. If you're newer here and want to be able to like better follow along with my sermons, I post uh, everything that I'm going to say today and every sermon that I've been doing for a while now on my blog. So if you just go to pastormikesmusings.com, uh, you'll be able to follow along. Like if I talk too fast for you, this might be able to help you. Or if you want to go find a quote, it's an easy way for you to do that. Like you could literally just follow along reading uh, everything that I'm going to say. Ross sitting in the back today is the guy that does that every single week I know. How am I doing so far? You're just getting started. Just getting started. I'm way off, way off the written notes here. Um, but part of it, like I, I will post links to books in there. If there's a reference or a quote that you missed, you can feel free to go there and, and pretty quickly and easily find it. Additionally, if you didn't know, we have a YouTube channel, which we post other additional content on every single week. So like I've talked a couple times about sermon scraps. So what I do is like every week when I'm writing a sermon, there's scraps that get left on the floor. So then I pick those up on Monday and talk about some of the additional things I didn't really have time to get to in my sermon on Sunday. So they're on there. And if you would rather listen in podcast form, we now have a podcast that you can look up. So our YouTube channel is if you just go youtube.com slash South Suburban Church and the uh, podcast is anchor.fm slash south dash suburban. And most of these you can get in the Friday News Flash, but just I wanted to make you aware of some of those resources that we're trying to make available to anyone. Uh, it, Micah is also doing a devotional right now going through the New City Catechism each week. So if you have questions about like what we just recited this morning, Paul, uh, Micah did a, an earlier uh, just brief devotional and overview of that on uh, Wednesday or Thursday this week. Well, in this uh, Ephesians 3, we're going to be continuing. Uh, we started Ephesians 3 last week. This week, Paul actually prays for power. And what I was thinking in, in relation to power this week is the, the stereotypical trope, my dad can beat up your dad. So it made me think of this, this Peanuts cartoon that many of you may have seen where, where uh, uh, Lucy leans over and says, my dad is taller than your dad, to which she gets the response, my dad goes to PTA meetings. So there's always these, these things and these ways that we try to compare or contrast, try to make ourselves feel better or make our dads seem much cooler or more significant than they truly appear. But today what we're going to be reminded of is, is if God is our heavenly father, then, then that is literally true. That for us who are in Christ, now we have a father who can beat up anyone else's dads. That's right. As we read through the Old Testament, we see like there's no other God compared to this true God. There's no other God like Yahweh. There's no other God like the one true and living God. So our God, our dad, can beat up any other God. So as, you, as we uh, dig into this, I invite you to stand with me as we read and honor God's word together this morning. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord. 
For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. As you're seated, I'd invite you to pray with me once again. God, we thank you for your inspired and errant and authoritative word. And pray that as we meditate and reflect upon these truths today, that we, as your people, can be strengthened according to your power. May we have, have the wisdom with, with all the saints to grasp the height and depth, the length, the, the, the breadth of your love extended to us, and that love that was demonstrated when you sent your one and only Son to bear the penalty for our sins on the cross. God, I pray that we, as your people, may come before you boldly with confidence, knowing that you will work all things out for our good and for your glory. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing Paul does, he kind of summarizes this beginning section by asking to be strengthened. Now, there's going to be two primary requests that Paul is going to ask in this text, then he's going to end or land the plane with a doxology at the very end. First thing we see is a prayer to be strengthened. So if you remember, what we have been expounding on up until this point is Paul has been reminding people the reality that two separate and distinct people have now been joined together to become one new humanity in the church with Jesus Christ as the head. Now these verses, verses 14 through 21 here, serve as the hinge from the theology that Paul has been describing in the first three chapters, launching into the practical application in the next few chapters. So next week, if you just glance down at the text a little bit, chapter 4 begins with, uh, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This means that you have to live a different life if you are in Christ. So one author, I think, summarized this helpfully, that the ethic, the way that we live in chapters 4 through 6, has its foundation in this prayer. Now, many of the New Testament letters have this explicit theology in the first half leading to explicit commands for a new life in the second half. And throughout chapter 3, we've seen this really high theology. Next week, we'll start looking at what that looks like in practice. Now, this is a reminder for all of us that we need to begin with good theology. If you don't have good theology, if you're not thinking or speaking the right things about God, then you can't go on to the next step of living out or applying that good theology in our day-to-day lives. So Paul has begun with this good theology, and then he launches into this prayer. He begins for this reason. Now remember, this is a repeat. If you look in your Bibles again, back at chapter 3, verse 1, it starts, for this reason. Now maybe, like Paul here, you have gotten distracted during a time of prayer. Now maybe you're holier than I am, and you have never had this happen to you, but you ever get to the point where you start praying, God, I'm so thankful for the sacrifice of your one and only son. Man, I'm hungry. I wonder what food we have in the fridge. You're in good company because apparently Paul experienced the exact same thing. But notice, what is the reason that Paul is distracted? He's distracted because of the nearness of God to us today. So to be fair to Paul, he didn't get distracted just because he was hungry, as I often get distracted when I start to pray. 
But because of this reason, so he's summarizing again all these truths that he has been talking about, he bows his knee before the Father. Now, this is referring to a humble posture. Uh, the way many people, uh, first century Jews would pray, would, would be standing with their arms outstretched like this, with their face looking up to heaven. Paul is, is doing the opposite of that. He is actually bowing his knees down before his Father. Now, now Jesus tells a story and an example like this in, in Luke chapter 18 that I think gives us a perspective on what Paul is communicating here. So Jesus, uh, Luke 18, beginning in verse 9, says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing, there's that word, by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." I tell you, this man, this humble man, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus is, is telling an example here of what does it mean to approach God humbly. Paul here is saying the way we approach God humbly is we bow our knees before Him. Now, the, the, the physical act doesn't always matter. Sometimes it can help you to think and reflect and ponder who you are in light of who God is, but the, the mentality is we are humbling ourselves before the Lord God. And notice what, how he describes God here, Father, God as our Father. Now, the starting point in all of these things matter. So remember, we have to have good theology. Even the starting point in our theology will determine where we're going to end up. Like many people are tempted to start with humans and then project our humanness onto God, but that is backwards to the way God has called and commanded us to do it. We start with God and then start looking for places or examples where He is demonstrated. Now this is getting to what we call theology proper or understanding of who God is. Now, even, even uh, as I was studying theology when I was in seminary, one of my professors encouraged us, every time you start studying theology or reading a new theology book, look where they start, because where they start is going to say, signify something about what they're trying to communicate. And if you think about it, there's pretty much three places you can start, either with God, with humanity, or with the Bible. The best place to start would be with either God or the Bible. If you start with humanity, you're going to end up in some potentially really bad places. The other thing we need to note is, is when, when uh, we see this word father, we have a tendency to project our human fathers onto God. And so every time we see this, we need to re remind ourselves that our earthly fathers are guaranteed to fail. This is part of the reason that we need a perfect heavenly father. Now, I, and I've, I've shared this before, when you hear God like described as father, don't just replace that with your, with your failed earthly father no matter how good he was, but because that is our tendency, God actually holds fathers accountable for their families, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, but the idea, I think, starts here in this text. When Paul is talking about father, what he's describing is, is like the source, the starting point, the provider, the nurturer of every family. In fact, Paul is actually using a play on words here that we can kind of miss or gloss over in the English. So, uh, father in, in Greek is the word pater, and then if you get over to this word every family, it's patria, which is, is signifying that family is taken out of the pater. So again, pater father, patria family, those are much more connected in the original Greek text than they are in, in our English translations. And so because God is the father of everything that has exists, every family or patria comes out from him. Now, um, I've, I've shared this quote again before, but I think it bears repeating when we get to a text like this. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, 
says, uh, the, the, talks about the significance of God being our Father. He says, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. See, whether any of us, or whether the world actually realizes this or not, everyone and everything traces their source back to God. So as we've been reciting the New City Catechism together, the first question asked is, what is, or sorry, second question asked is, what is God? The answer is, God is the creator. He designed families. Therefore, we as, as Christians and in families today have to demonstrate and live out how God actually designed our families to operate. And then above and beyond that, we as a church need to be a bigger family that welcomes anyone in who doesn't have an earthly family or has a broken or, or messed up earthly family, which if you get down to the root of it, all of our families are messed up in some way. But this is also, I think, where we, we continually and regularly see the devil effect, affecting or attacking the families in our world today. And we'll get to some of that more explicitly when we get to some of the ethical implications in Ephesians 4 and 5 as well. Then he goes on, so from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, since our Father created everything, why do we have a tendency to worry that God won't provide what we need? I was talking to someone this week who was reading uh, Psalm 23 uh, in, in a slightly different translation than the one I usually use, which was translated as, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Yet we so often worry that we're going to lack, don't we? Or I've, I've been reading through some of the examples of, of the early church in, in the book of Acts. You get to Acts 4.34, it says, describing the early church, there was not a needy person among them. If only that were true of our churches today, right? See, God has given us everything we need spiritually, and then He's given us the church to help us with everything we need physically. So we, when we come across something like this, need to ask the question, do we believe that? Do we live that out? Do we thank God for the gift of each other that we have? Do we even go on from there and ask God for access to these kind of riches that are available to us in God? As we continue going and working our way through this prayer, be thinking through James 4.2, where James the Apostle says, you do not have because you do not ask. So what is stopping you from asking? But Paul doesn't just stop there. This is to remind us that God owns everything. But Paul doesn't ask for everything, does he? Similar to Solomon in the Old Testament, who was offered anything he wanted. God said, I will give you whatever it is you ask, and he asked for wisdom. Not riches, not, not uh, anything else. He asked for wisdom. Now, uh, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power. Notice this word, be strengthened. This verb be is actually going to carry out through most of this section. We can't be strengthened by ourselves. You can't do this in your own power. Do you regularly ask for this as well? Now, this isn't just like grimace and bear it, whatever comes. This is intentionally asking God to sustain you through whatever is allowed into your life. And notice that there is a means by which this comes through the Spirit. 
The Spirit Himself, the Spirit living within us is what strengthens us, it's what equips us, it's what sanctifies us, it's what, as we saw in Ephesians 1, brings us from death and into life. And now that the Spirit is alive in us, what do we have to fear? But this strengthening, this power through His Spirit comes in a specific place, in your inner being. Now, this is not a Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a, a, an early first century heresy that tried to divide us into like soul versus your material body. No, because we are actually embodied beings. You can't like separate and, and make those two things two separate things. If you do, that is literally Gnosticism, which again is a first century heresy. Now, if we look at our world around us today, uh, much of what is taking place in the arguments in, in our current cultural context actually gets back to this issue. So Gnosticism, despite being labeled a heresy in the first century, has even started affecting many of us in the church today and our world. Like, think of the way that, that you uh, uh, think of heaven. Like, many of us, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm guessing, think of like this picture of Tom and Jerry, where you're playing a harp sitting on a, crowd, uh, a cloud, right? That's not at all what heaven looks like. We are actually going to be embodied people in heaven. We are going to have our bodies, but they're not going to be broken by decay. You're not going to twist your ankle when you're running around. You're not going to have a, a, a hurt back. You're not going to have to walk with a cane. You're not going to be able to, to, to worry about getting hurt at all. But then our world has a tendency to, to think about this way that like, you have people saying things like, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, as if those two things can be separated. But the Bible is telling us that those two things can't be separated. We are embodied people. We can't get away from that. As I've heard one person say, we are gendered all the way down to our DNA. Now, we're trying to train our kids this way. So, like, we've started trying to help our kids. Calvin, it, it, we were driving out to a, a pumpkin patch yesterday, and Calvin was in the back saying he is happy to be a boy. And Ellie was in the back saying she's happy to be a girl. And then we hear whispering of Calvin saying, Ellie, let's trick him. Mommy, I'm happy to be a girl. Funny in one context, not funny in another. Because our world is going to try to train them to think that way, try to train them to think differently. That's part of the reason we, we need to come here, so that we can be reminded that, that our inner being matters, but so does our, our physical body. And I think this idea, this, this inner body being strengthened, is something Paul talks about in, in, in 2 Corinthians as well. There he says, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentarily affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So notice he's comparing this outer self with this inner self. Again, not Gnosticism, as if we can just divide these things. But our physical bodies will decay because of sin. So this is asking, uh, forcing us to ask the question, where are you focusing your attention? Is it on the wasting away of, of your material body? Or are you looking forward to being renewed? I think you've seen a beautiful picture of this if you've ever watched an older saint who is faithfully walking with the Lord. The older they get, the sweeter their faith gets and the kinder their temperament gets. And the fact that all of us are still here breathing today means God's not done with us. He's still helping us to smooth out our rough edges and doing whatever it takes to make us more like Him. Now, Paul kind of lands the plane here for this section, verse 17, so that, the purpose statement, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, this is somewhere we, we get the idea to ask Jesus into your heart, but when we read through the Bible that this idea of faith is much more significant than just saying a, a one-time decision. 
Now, uh, throughout history, God has, has used many different means to, to draw and, and bring people to himself, whether it's crusades, revivals, things like altar calls. And, and I've got some issues with them because there's a tendency to focus so much emphasis on this one-time decision and then neglect what comes after that, which is the day-by-day being conformed more into the image of his son. And, and if all it took was a prayer, we would essentially be acting like witches, like acting, pulling out this magical incantation, if that was all it took, it would be very easy, isn't it? But that's not what Jesus has, has asked or called us to do. It's, it's a one-time decision, but then a daily decision after that, to daily, as Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow after him. Now, uh, the best illustration I've, I've thought of, of this is, is uh, with houses. So Karen and I have owned uh, three houses throughout our lives, and two of them have been slightly neglected when we moved in. Um, like, I, I still question, what was the deal with wallpaper and popcorn ceilings? It never looked good, guys. So over time, after you move in, you start pulling down wallpaper, you start replacing floors, remodel some bathrooms, maybe add some space to accommodate your growing family. That's a picture of what God does in our lives. He moves into us, He moves into our house through faith, and then He gets to work remodeling. And sometimes he'll need to knock down walls that you've built up, and it's painful, difficult, and oftentimes inconvenient, which is often how house projects are, aren't they? The house stuff breaking never comes about at the right time. Uh, There's a season in in our life uh, where in February, our house blew down, and this was all six months before uh, Calvin, our first son, was born. Uh, So fence blew over. Uh, I was in school, Kara was in school, our church was expanding to two campuses, which I was majorly involved in the build-out for the second campus. Our dog chewed up our carpet, needing to be replaced the next month. Kara's car got totaled in May, yet throughout all that time, God worked. The church came around us, supported us, and, and uh, like we wouldn't be here today were it not for the support and encouragement of the people coming alongside us. Now, this illustration of of the house is where Paul, borrowing from Jesus, actually talks about building your foundation in the right place, which leads us straight into the next section. So the first thing Paul's praying for is is for us to be strengthened. The next thing is to grasp Christ's love. So here he says that you being rooted and grounded in love. So rooted is, is like a plant. So if a plant is rooted, its, its roots are deep, it's supposed to be healthy again. I don't know the way plants work that well. I understand the second one. Grounded is like having a good foundation. I know how buildings work. If you don't have a solid foundation that you're building on, the entire building is going to fall down around you. But notice what they are being rooted and grounded in. It's a specific attribute. Love. So for any of us who are now in Christ, love is supposed to be our new ethic, which means love is not optional. But it also means that it is not as the world defines love. If you want to see how God defines love, we need to go read a passage like 1 Corinthians 13. But again, note that this is not optional for Christians. Love is the command for all of us. And hold on to that idea because we'll come back to this idea of love a little bit later. Paul actually brings up this love once again. So, rooted and grounded in love may have strength. Again, this connects us back to being strengthened. May have strength to comprehend what? The breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. 
Now, it, it's a kind of weird language that Paul is using here. Like, what is this breadth, length, height, and depth? It, it made me think of another passage with which nothing can separate us from the love of God and in Christ Jesus our Lord. But in this context, it's referring to something a little bit different. So there's essentially four options or ways that scholars will argue that this is referring to something specific. And, and like, there's even some weird ones, like in early, uh, early church history, people argue that this was referring to the four dimensions of the cross, which again, there's no direct connection to it. There's some weird ways of reading the Bible. So the four primary ways of trying to interpret what Paul is referring to here. First is the incredible power of God. The second is the multifaceted wisdom of God. The third is the love of Christ. And the fourth is the mystery of God's plan of salvation. So like, if you just take a woodenly literal translation from the Greek, uh, and this is another one of those big long run-on sentences, so it just all mushes together. Paul says, to grasp what is the width and length and height and depth. That's all he says. Like He doesn't refer to anything else because then there's a connective tissue and, secondarily, to know the love of Christ. Now, uh, one scholar that I was reading, I think, summarized this, oh, not that one, summarized this really well, where he said he thinks it's probably a combination of all of them. So perhaps this, this uh, forward word description is best to see all four of these as summing up this chapter. If that is the case, what Paul is saying is to refer to a combination of the last three that I talked about. That is wisdom, love, and mystery of God. The revealing of the mystery as a result of the love and wisdom of God. Paul is then asking for the multidimensional plan of God to work itself out in the church and the world, manifesting God's wisdom and Christ's love as one person after another is converted to Christ. I think that's what Paul is, is getting at here. Is, is as the gospel message goes out, people start understanding this mystery, this love that, that comes only because of us who are in Christ. But then notice that there is a specific group in which this love is supposed to be manifested with all the saints. Now, this is a reminder for us that you cannot begin to comprehend Christ's love alone. You need the church around you. The live stream, watching online, is not enough. Solo Christianity, trying to pursue Christ by yourself, is not enough. Your nuclear family, your individual family, is not enough. In fact, I think that many of us have, have actually made an idol out of the nuclear family today. That's uh, a story for a different day. But then, with all the saints, what we are supposed to know is, additionally, this breadth, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ. Now, this is a really weird phrase, I thought. Uh, to know the love of Christ. How do you know love? Like knowing love, experiencing love is a whole lot more than just a fleeting feeling. I think a really a good picture of this is, is marriage. And marriage for many of us is the proving ground where we actually start to know what this looks like. So you, you think you love someone the day that you get married, but how tested has it really been? How much life have you really walked through together? It takes effort, it takes work, it takes walking through sickness and health, through richer or poorer. Then, after you've walked through some things, you can actually start to know love. So I was uh, reading this week for this. I, I, I'll try to get through this story. I couldn't, I couldn't do it throughout this week. But uh, the importance of what it is to, to know love. Um, this little book, Praying with Paul, A Call to Spiritual Reformation by D.A. Carson. Uh, he walks through the various ways and situations where Paul prays. And he tells a, a beautiful story of what knowing love does versus what not knowing love does. Again, I'll try to get through it. I may not be able to. We can intuitively, intuitively understand how this works from our experiences in the natural realm. Perry Downs, a colleague at the institution where I teach, and his wife, Sandy, have for years served as foster parents. Most of the children they have helped, now well over 20, have been newborns and have stayed with them until adopted. 
But some years ago, the agency with whom they are connected asked them to take in twin 18-month-old boys. Perry and Sandy hesitated but agreed to accept them when the agency assured them that the boys would be with them only for about six weeks. The first night in the Downs' home, the boys were put to bed, and not a peep came from their bedroom. Curious, Perry crept into their room a half hour later. He found both boys wide awake, their pillows wet with tears, but neither was making a sound. It transpired that they had been beaten for crying in several of the homes in which they had been placed before coming to Perry and Sandy's. This was their ninth home. Testing suggested that the twins were irremediably damaged emotionally and intellectually. As it happened, the twins stayed with Perry and Sandy for close to two years. By the time they were adopted, they were judged within the normal range of intellectual and emotional capacity. Of course, this is only one story out of millions. We need only read our newspapers to be reminded that all things being equal, unless a child is reared in a home where love and discipline surround every step, that child will not attain emotional maturity. See, that's the knowing love that, that we can experience. For those of us who are in Christ, we're no longer disciplined or beaten without cause. There's a purpose and a direction to the discipline that God allows to come into our lives. I had a similar experience. I, I uh, had the privilege of, of going to Russia for a mission trip when I was in college, and the weirdest thing about the, the orphanages in Russia is they're completely silent because crying is a, is a learned response. So a kid cries when it, or learns to cry when it needs something. So it learns that if it cries, it's going to get attention or mom's going to come uh, feed it or it's going to be changed. Whatever is uncomfortable is going to get fixed when I cry. The orphanages in Russia are so full and they don't have enough people to, to help with the kids that when a kid cries there, it eventually learns to just stop crying because nothing's going to come and fix it. Nothing's going to solve it. So for, for those of us who are now in Christ, who have God as our perfect heavenly father, God is always going to come and respond when we cry. That's what it means to know love, to experience and understand the love that God has for us. And as we get to experience and understand this, this knowing love, it goes, Paul goes on and says this love passes, surpasses knowledge. We will never be able to fully understand it, but as time goes on and as we have eternity with Christ, you'll get to know more and more and more of what this love looks like and feels like. And it's to the, the end, at the end of verse 19, to be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, I think there are two primary aspects that Paul is talking about here. The first is, is becoming more and more like Christ, as I, as I alluded to in 2 Corinthians 4 passage. It is becoming, uh, being conformed day by day to become more like Christ. So the remodeling that Jesus is doing in your life is to a specific end. And what that means is if you, if you go on in other passages in the Bible, it means being filled with love. Jesus talks about this in John 17, 26, where he said, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So what we see in this passage is Jesus is, is talking about the way he is evidence in our lives is through love. So the same love that God the Father sent to his Son is what we are supposed to demonstrate to the world, and that is how we demonstrate and exemplify love. Now, as I mentioned earlier, love is the new Christian ethic for us. But we also need to remember that the love that we have cannot be divorced from truth. Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, talks about it this way. He says, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. I'll pause there for a second. I think this is where our world is at today, to be honest. Love without truth. It's just a pure emotional feeling. It's just sentimentality. It doesn't lead us to any standard of true measurement that we should be pursuing. 
But then I think the other side, the next sentence, is what we many Christians today are trying to operate in. So then going back here, truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and repent. The conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace. You need both truth and love, and both of these things working together. Now, all of these things that that Paul has been asking for and praying for, the being strengthened to grasp Christ's love, find their culmination in this wonderful doxology. So as we come to these last couple verses, it's almost as if Paul can't stop himself from, from, from pausing and praising God for who he is and what he has done in their lives. So, verse 20, think of this reality. Since God is all-powerful, what can he not do? Now to him who was able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. So again, we have to start with who God is. There are some things God cannot do. For example, God can't lie. God can't betray himself. God cannot change. So because of that reality, God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Church, you literally cannot out-ask or out-think God. God has already done it all and thought it all, and your thoughts, your actions are merely derivative of Him. But let's take this phrase in context here. What has Paul been asking for? He's been asking for strengthening in the inner being by faith, and he's been asking for growing in understanding of who God is. The way that I summarize that is making and maturing disciples of Jesus. Now, this isn't just name it and claim it theology. Name it and claim it is, is the belief that if you just speak something in Jesus' name, then God is guaranteed to give it to you. What this is is asking God to work in us and make us more and more and more of what He has created us to be. I read a really interesting uh, book this past week that was talking about some of these ideas titled Plugged In, Connecting Your Faith with What You Watch, Read, and Play by Daniel Strange. One of the pieces uh, that, that stood out to me is, is how we don't have a choice on whether or not we're engaging our culture today. Like We are in this world, whether we realize it or not, the question then becomes, what is the best way to be faithful in the culture and context that God has called us to? And what we need to do is we need to start looking at things through a gospel lens, through a biblical lens. Uh, I mentioned a, a phrase in a sermon a couple weeks ago, but it, it, this book is where I got this term subversive fulfillment from. So the gospel is subversive fulfillment to all the stories or ways that the world is trying to put the pieces of how we got here together. But the difference is that the stories the world is telling can't hold up to the reality, the weight of the world around us. Another way of summarizing this, like I think the best description of of apologetics, apologetics is not like apologizing for our faith, it's defending and telling the reasons why we believe what we believe. The reality is I think we as Christians need to get better at telling the better story. And the better story, I think, here is abundantly more than all we could ask or think. So in this book, just a quick quote, says, The gospel subverts, so again, subverts of fulfillment, subverts in that it confronts, unpicks, and overthrows the world's stories. Then it goes on and fulfills in that it connects and is shown to be worthy of our hopes and desires, encouraging us to exchange our old stories for new ones, which turn out to be the originals from which our false stories are smudged and ripped fakes. Like We have a better answer. We have a better story today than the one that the world offers. Like, uh, think of a, a, a Van Gogh painting. 
If you could come across an original, a real Van Gogh painting, it would be priceless. But you can go on Amazon and for something like six bucks, get a Van Gogh replica. How much would that replica be worth? About the paper that you bought it on, right? Maybe good for starting a fire or kindling. But if you, got the, if you had the original piece, it would be priceless. It is similar to what we have in the gospel message. There's all these competing worldviews that the world is trying to throw your way to give answers for why you are here, for what the meaning and purpose of, of your life is, but all of them are going to fail you and fall flat at some point, which is why we have the gospel. That's why we as Christians need to look for opportunities. We need to look for ways to point out where the world is right. This is referred to as common grace. This is the, the reality that God's grace has been given to everyone in the world, whether they realize it or not. The Bible talks about it, that God makes the rainfall on both the unjust and the just. So God will allow truths and good things to come out in people's lives. Look for that. Process through it and then, and then think through where their thinking falls short and then bring that as a connection point to the greatest story ever told, the story that is still being written. I, I sometimes think that, that we often view our God as too small, to be working in the world around us. And whether we realize it or not, God is working in and through human history with an end, with a goal, with a purpose in mind. And that end is something that we can only really dream of right now. That is that as we grow more and more like Christ, we'll be more and more filled with the fullness of God and be a better witness to the world around us of what we're supposed to be like. The same leads us to the last verse. To Him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. So the end, the, the chief goal for all of us is glorifying God. And Paul says where, how, and when. The where is in the church, the how is in Christ Jesus, and the when is throughout all generations and forever and ever. So if you want everything that Paul promises in this section, you must be part of the church, which today is made visible in local churches. There's a reason that I keep emphasizing the church as vitally important today. It's not an optional add-on. It is literally meant to be your lifeblood as a Christian today. So if you are not a part of a local church, you won't be strengthened. You won't grasp Christ's love, much less demonstrate Christ's love to the world, which is how we glorify God today. Because the church is going to last forever under the lordship of Jesus throughout all generations and on into eternity. Well, since God is, is now our perfect heavenly Father, we get to ask Him. That means we get to pray for Him to strengthen us, to help us understand and then live out His love for us. And by doing that, we bring glory to Him in the church and in His Son forever. We also note that this prayer is meant to be a global prayer because we do this with the saints and there are saints all across the world. So we pray that God's glory would be seen in the making and maturing of disciples of Jesus throughout the world until He finally comes back and makes us completely holy. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for this word. I thank you that because of, of the new humanity that you have created in, in Christ, we can now bow before you and worship. I pray that you would strengthen us as, as we seek to be faithful followers of you. May we strengthen each other. May we help each other. May we encourage and exhort one another to more faithfully and readily follow after you with all of our lives. I pray that we would be strengthened in our, in our inner being so that as we feel the world uh, falling apart around us, as we feel our bodies giving into decay, that you would be honored and glorified in and through us today. God, may we plant our roots deep into your word. 
May your, your word transform us. May your word conform us into the image of your Son. May your Spirit, who indwells us, lead us and guide us in all righteousness and help us be conformed into the image of your Son. God, I thank you that you are our Father. <laughs> thank you that you are the source of everything and, and confess that we so often ask two small prayers of you. We don't acknowledge or admit that you are far above us, that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. So help us to think bigger thoughts of you. Help us to remember and realize that you are the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.